The Jericho Network on Westwood One. The following program is presented by the Jericho Network in association with Podcast One. Podcast One presents Rock Talk, Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. All the rockers, all the stories. This is incredible. Now, now, here's your host, respected rock journalist, Mitch LaFawn. Welcome to Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn and a very very glad that you could join me today. I've got a, a great, great episode. If you have been enjoying the episodes, do me a favor and head over to iTunes and find the podcast there and give it a five-star rating. That would be so greatly appreciated. And of course, while you're in the iTunes store, go even further and download the uh, Podcast One app. And uh, there you go. And since we're, we're plugging stuff, uh, head over to Twitter and find me there, at Mitch LaFon. Give me a follow. A lot of fun on there, a lot of great discussion, a lot of great factoids about rock music. But um, anyway, let us get into uh, today's show. I am going to do the, uh, the the format a little different. I'm going to get right into the first interview, and then I'm going to come back after the break, and I'm going to give you the Rock Talk segment, and then an interview with Slim Jim Phantom of the Stray Cats. But um, I want to jump into this first interview because I'm just, you know, I'm like a kid in the candy store. I'm just so, so very excited. Um, the band is L.A. Guns, and I'm going to be talking with guitarist Tracy Guns, which, you know, sort of is a nice segue since we've had sort of Guns and Roses month all through August. Here we are starting September, and so we're going to have Tracy Guns, who, of course, um, his namesake is part of the Guns and, Ro- uh, Guns and Roses lore. But they have got a new album called The Missing Piece. It comes o- It comes out in October of 2017. And if you're listening to this past uh, October 2017, you will know that how good it is and, and, and how right am I in saying that it's a, a wonderful, wonderful album. So I wanted to get into this interview right off the top because I'm just so, so very excited. You know, it's not often that you get an album that you just go, wow, wow, that was great. And I've had a chance to hear the L.A. Guns, the Missing Piece album. That, that you know, it's 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 just wonderful. It's it's absolutely wonderful. And years and years and years and years and years ago, I had a record company called Standback Entertainment, and through that, I had put out uh, a lot of L.A. Guns related albums. I put out uh, Phil Lewis's More Purple Than Black, Tracy Guns' Killing Machine, and of course, L.A. Guns' Wasted. So it's always a pleasure to uh, to talk to Tracy and uh, talk about L.A. Guns. So, you know, here we are. Without further ado, I'm going to give you one of the greatest guitarists in rock, the one, the only, Tracy Guns. We are speaking with guitarist Tracy Guns of, of course, L.A. Guns. The new album is The Missing Piece, and uh, Tracy, I have tweeted about this i have told you this instagram the whole thing <laughs> this album which only comes out in october i wish i have heard is right. absolutely fantastic from top to bottom there is no filler on this thing so uh congratulations on that first just it's great thank you thank you very much uh, you know uh, life's a journey <laughs> yeah, it really is. So, so let's talk about this because you know, for years there was all kinds of stuff in the press about you and Phil and this and that, and you had this singer and that singer. Mm-hmm. But you got it all together. How did we right. get back together for this album? Who made that first call, or or what was that first itch that said, 
Ugh, you know what? We're too old for this nonsense. Let's just go make a, an album, you know? Um, well, I mean, it wasn't even, a, you know, a question. There was no, like, defining moment other than us walking into, you know, a rehearsal space and and going, wow, you know, that was the identifying moment when, you know, I played guitar and we played an L.A. Gun song and Phil sang it. Um, there's something intangible in those two sounds together, <clears throat> you know, um, and especially, you know, with kind of like an upgraded, you know, band, uh, just the, the amount of power and uh, chemistry. Um, and that first time we got together for that was uh, Phil and I were asked to do uh, Hard Rock Cafe in Las Vegas, their 25th anniversary um, party. And, you know, we both said, oh, yeah, sure, that'd be great. And we went in and, and, you know, that rehearsal, that was kind of the like, oh, uh -oh." (laughs) uh-oh, like this is really cool, Um, you know. And, I mean, you spend a lot of time, um, well, I do anyways, as as a musician, you know, trying to convince myself that one situation to the next is the greatest, you know, because you got to make the best out of of what you have. Um, But, you know. Playing with Phil uh, is that's an undeniable chemistry and it's unique for sure. And uh, you know we got excited. We just moved forward basically very slowly from that point. Yeah, you really did. Now, so so talk to me about when you had those discussions to actually say, okay, we want to put an album together because playing on stage at the Hard Rock is one thing. You know, hey Phil, great, mm-hmm. let's do four songs, happy times. But getting right. back together and writing, so. The one thing I don't have in my liner notes here is who wrote the songs? Are these sort of you and Phil wrote these together? Or are these things that you sort of both had lying around and said, hey, this could work? At, well, actually, um, me and a guy named Mitch Davis wrote uh, 80% of the material together. And Mitch is somebody I've been working with uh, in other aspects of the music business. And he's written a couple songs for me um, on the League of Gentlemen record. But um, when... This was all coming together. Um, Phil was really, you know, he was just ready to kind of do some gigs here and there and, and you know, kind of half-heartedly retire. You know, he wanted to go do some acoustic gigs, do some, uh, you know, kind of refresh new L.A. Guns gigs. But then when I sent him the material that I was working on, that was another defining moment. You know, he, he had that, that wow moment like, oh, my God, really? You know, I was like, yeah, you know been kind of saving this stuff up in case we ever did something and um so that that kind of locked that into place and then uh at that point you know he he you know was all in and just like oh my god you know we got to follow through with this it's going to be great you know and uh so at that point i said okay so yeah start writing some lyrics over this mess of music you know and uh he was a really happy point in his life he was making a transition and things like that so um i had uh mitch kind of do the bulk of the work and then uh i would fly phil out to new york that's where mitch lives and and he has a studio out there you know it's a pretty wild amazing place to to create anything and they worked on the lyrics and the melodies and recording um all that stuff together so there was never a time where phil and i sat in a room and wrote a song for this record which uh you know it turned out to be the best way in the end you know it it really worked well and uh you know, I mean, we live 300 miles apart, so it's not, you know, we really only see each other when he comes into town here to play or we're on tour um, or, you know, he, he comes out here. I don't really vacation in Vegas much, but, um, 
you know, so that, that was the process. And it was really easy that way because, uh, Mitch, you know, he's, a uh, kind of on the other side of the fence writing, you know, music for, you know, culture. And he's a very anonymous guy, but he's a really big metalhead. His, his favorite band is Merciful Fate and uh, a huge L.A. Guns fan. <clears throat> so the three of us really working together um, made this music happen. Um, and then there's the other song you mentioned, which was Don't Bring a, a, a Knife to a Gunfight and also The Devil Made Me Do It. Those are, those are Michael Grant songs. And um, I didn't even actually play guitar on those songs because he's just so brilliant on that stuff. Uh, so, you know, he brought those two tunes in. And then uh, Johnny Martin brought in uh, Baby's Got a Fever, which Mitch also wrote the lyrics to. And uh, everything just, you know, fits together perfectly. And Phil's voice is, you know, at the top of his, his, his ever been. He's never sounded as, as great as he does now. Um, so I try to make it real easy for him. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and I got to say, baby got a, uh, baby got fever is another one of those songs that I really, really like on this album. I think I'm going to say that for like all 10 tracks, quite frankly. Um, <laughs> Michael Grant, of well, course. It's, it's, yeah. It's, it's, it's an interesting kind of, uh, chemistry because, you know, Johnny and, uh, Michael, they really, live the spirit of a vintage LA guns. You know what I mean? Like they really bring that kind of energy and the black leather and the attitude um, that the band was founded on, you know, 30 years ago. Um, so they really bring that kind of excitement to those tunes and particularly live as well, of course. And, and uh, you know, so there's a lot to be said for why the record is so well balanced. Cause you know, I mean me, I've been doing this for 30 years, you know? And so, um, it's it's not as exciting for me to write something like No Mercy, uh, although I did write Speed, but uh, but you know I'm a little bit more evolved musically, and I don't really you know listen to other people, you know. So so I, I'm so happy to have those guys writing, you know, to, so we can do you know older sounding LA Gun stuff. Well, in fact, okay, so talk to me about that because you are sort of 30 years after the first album, and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. When you sat down and said, we're going to make this album, okay, everybody's getting along, let's do this, Frontiers is, has our back, let's, let's... Do you go back to the first couple albums and say, we need to make another No Mercy or another, or do you say, uh-uh, we're going to start... You know, I mean, you know what I mean? Like, Are you trying to recapture the classic L.A. Gun sound, or do you say, no, this is L.A. Guns 2017? Uh. Um, uh, I, I don't really think either or, you know, I think, um, you know, when Michael had played me his songs, it just reminded me of old LA gun songs, you know, like, like, wow, okay, those fit great. You know, those were definitely could be LA gun songs. Same with Johnny's songs. As far as my, as my direction, you know, I'm rooted in the seventies, you know, no matter, you know, where I go or where I head, um, those are the influences that are, you know, 24 hours a day swimming in my head, you know, everything from, you know, the Delphonics to Led Zeppelin, <clears throat> Joe Walsh, uh, Judas Priest, maybe early Iron Maiden and Def Leppard, you know, that's the kind of stuff that, that is kind of cemented in my brain. And then all the classic rock bands from Queen to the Eagles to stuff like that. So, um, you know, my number one rule is to always look forward and never look back, you know? Um, and, and, you know, never wanted LA guns really to fit in anywhere or be like something, you know, it's just, it's, it's the music is based on what, you know, my soul is creating at the time. And, um, you know, it's oddly enough, like the, uh, 
the last two tracks, which have all the classical music in them, those are things I wrote for Quiet Riot in, in like 2005, um, 2000, yeah, 2005 when I was going to join, and uh, I ended up not joining, so I still had that music. And um, I never wanted to use that particular music, like in a League of Gentlemen situation, because that was like totally a blues-based band, you know, psychedelic rock. So I was able to hold on to those. And then when we got into this mode, okay, we have to make a record. I knew that I had those two pieces of music and, and now it's finally going to, you know, have a chance to develop them all the way and, uh, you know, let those see some light. So, you know, 15 years, not really 15, 12 years to write a record is, uh, you know, ample time to do something great. <laughs> it really is. And it turned out great. Now, um, Talk to me about Michael Grant, because he was in a version of L.A. Guns with uh, Phil mm -hmm. before you joined, but he had his own band, I believe, signed to Epic or Sony, which I, I think is the same thing. And, right. And, and Ever After, they toured opening for Poison. That's where I first saw him. Mm -hmm. Lead vocalist, right. lead... I mean, he, he's, he's got it. Um, what was that like oh, yeah. for you meeting him, and, and how, how, how do you appreciate his talents? Well, I, you know, I, I reached out to him a couple of years ago, you know, and just said, man, you know, out of all the guys that have come into L.A. Guns after me, you know, you're the one that I, I, I recognize and I respect as, you know, a unique individual. Um, and, you know, it was my idea to have him in this version of the band as well. Um, you know, he just, like I said earlier, he encompasses that really youthful energy that L.A. Guns is supposed to portray. And, uh, you know, he's a great guitar player and... Uh, you know, always dresses the part, you know, he's, he's, he's into being a rock and roller, you know? And, uh, you know, so that, that was the easiest thing in the world. And, you know, he's, he's important, I think, to a lot of the LA Guns fans that, that have seen him play in the three years before we put this together. And, um, it just, it just made too much sense. I mean, I could have got a guy that, you know, look cool and, and just play cool to stand there and play rhythm. But, uh, he just, he just fits, man. You know, we're, we're, we're best of friends and, uh, you know, I let him do his thing and, uh, as he should be. And, um, you know, that's why the, the live show gets such a great response because it's, it's very multidimensional, but still within, you know, the LA guns framework. And that framework to me was always, you know, do the hits, but also show off a little bit, you know, show some soul, show that it's not all about, you know, black leather, uh, black hair and, you know, 120 beats per minute, you know, and, uh, you know, we really, Michael brings that, you know, and I also confident that, that, you know, when I'm 70 and I don't want to tour anymore, you know, that, that he'll be the guy, you know what I mean? He can do it all. He could, me and Phil could retire and he could front the band on guitar and vocals. He probably could actually. Um, yeah, he's amazing. Um, looking back at the history with with all the different lineup changes, are there are there any regrets on your behalf where you say, you know, after Walking the Dead, maybe I should have stuck it out, or maybe I shouldn't have brought in this singer or that singer, or maybe Phil, or is it? Listen, it, it is what it is. It is what it is. I mean, you know, I I enjoy working with a variety of people and musicians, and uh, you know, every talented musician has a special unique quirk about them you know and i'm kind of addicted to you know meeting people for better or worse and working with them and and trying to have a creative process you know and uh 
I mean, you know, most of the time, uh, I had a great time and, and, you know, driving the boat. And if we had, if I hadn't have, uh, done the bride of destruction, the, this lineup right now would have never happened. You know what I mean? So, uh, it's just, like I said earlier, you know, it's a, it's a strange road and everybody's is different, but no, I have zero regrets about anything. Now, where does that leave us for the future, though? Is this sort of this one and done, we'll do some touring and see you later? Or does this get you excited enough to say, ah, let's start work on the next album for 2019? I mean, is there a future or is this, hey, folks, enjoy this album because we're saying goodbye? No, no not at all. Um, I, I started writing for the next record yesterday. It's funny you brought that up. Um, yeah, this is it, man. You know, it's, you know, we know, you know, it's come all the way back to home and it feels like home for Phil and I so there would be no reason uh, we don't have any of the, the problems um, that we had uh, see Phil and I never had a problem between us it was always uh, other people that you know less talented with very big mouths who thought their uh, their opinions mattered where in the end the only thing that matters is the music and the sound of the music and to move straight ahead and, and move forward without friction. And that's the one thing that Phil and I supply each other um, when we're together is zero friction communication. And uh, that's how we're able to, to, to move fast, move up, and keep it strong. League of Gentlemen, Tracy Gunn's League of Gentlemen, two albums came out. Is that something mm-hmm. that is now over or is that something that you see as having a continuing sort of side project where if it doesn't fit on an L.A. Guns album, I've got this outlet. Well, uh, certainly, I mean, there there could be more League of Gentlemen stuff. I mean, that's uh, a completely different direction. That's a different mood. Um, but as I really see it, uh, you know, L.A. Guns has always been very diverse musically. So as long as Phil's singing, it sounds like L.A. Guns. So um, I don't have any ambition to do more League of Gentlemen right now. I'm, I'm you know, I'm 100% in LA guns, you know, and the music I write is, is for LA guns. And we've already committed, uh, to frontiers for the second record. And, you know, we have a DVD, we have a lot of things coming out in the future. So, um, you know, we just got to go and, and have the fun, you know, so out there, people show up like crazy now. Um, yeah. people are happy that, that this is happening. So, yep. yeah, right. and it's important that we deliver this record, this, it had to be great. Well, you, you got that right. And, and you know, I think people are genuinely happy that you and Phil, you know, there are some artists, you know, like Joe Perry and Steven Tyler and Gene and Paul, and they just sort of have to be together. And myself, mm-hmm. just as a fan of L.A. Guns, you know, regardless of anything else, when I see Phil and Tracy together, it just feels right. You just look at it and you go, yeah, yeah that's right. That's, that's the way it should be. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, we got, you know, we, we, we got lucky, uh, you know, with that chemistry, you know, very early on. And uh, it, it's something that's real and honest. And, um, you know, we're both very happy to be doing what we're doing. Trust me. Um, I want to ask you about, if I can, if you don't mind, the L.A. Guns Wasted EP. Because, mm-hmm. as you know, we, we, we worked on that. and But on this yeah. day in 1997... On, on this exact day, as far as I remember, uh, we were oh, really? in the studio, yeah, in, in Burbank, um, Red yep. Zone with Dennis Dager, and you were recording um, Cold Gin with Ralph Sens. And, and right, right. Had, I remember. Um, 
Talk to me a little bit about Ralph, because he's gone on now to front Steel Panther. Mm-hmm. What, what did he bring to the band? Because he's sort of this over-the-top kind of character. Um, you know, talk to me a little bit about that L.A. Guns Wasted album, because I, I think it sort of got underappreciated, because there are some great songs on there, and, and Ralph or, or Michael sure. does great work. Sure. Yeah, I mean, you know, the... the, the yeah, before we get to Ralph, you know, I mean, that's the thing, is, and it's the proofs in the pudding. When Phil and I are together, people have interest. Um, when we're not together, some people still have interest. Um, and that's psychological, and that's also, you know, what the hipsters, you know, refer to as a brand. You know what I mean? And, you know, taking care of the brand and all that stuff. But, you know, but when we were together art was still being created, music was still moving forward, and it was very good, like you mentioned. And Ralph um, had brought a kind of energy into my life completely, you know, on stage, off stage, the kind of energy and the way that he interacted with our audience. Um, you know, it wasn't a battle against the audience for him. You know, he just has a kind of personality. Uh, he's an entertainer, and he's amazing and uh, a great vocalist and a damn good writer too. Um, so that was a, a really good time for me. And uh, I think we toured with Quiet Riot or something and, you know, played some bigger places and, and it, was, it was awesome. You know, that was one of the highlights for sure. You know, uh, uh, you know, LA Guns tends to be, you know, a bit dark and he definitely brought some light to it. And uh, that was one of the, one of the most fun years or a couple of years maybe uh, that I had being in LA Guns and particularly making that record. You know, I mean, uh, you know, he's such a Van Halen-y guy, but then he came, comes up with Forgiving Eyes, you know, the lyrics for that. I mean, that, that shit's dark, man. You know, he, he can do it. Yeah, he really can. And, and uh, anyway, that was just a fun thing to do. Um, and then another one that, oh, yeah. that, that got, you, you sort of got passed under the carpet here. Another great album was the Contraband one. Um, mm. Was that just meant to be a one-off or was that supposed to be something that was going to move forward and be two, three albums? It could have been. Um, what it was, was Alan Kovac managed all the artists that played on the record, and he also managed the writers that wrote the original tracks. Um, so that was more like, you know, Kovac had a new label. He put his artists together to create that band, and uh, and it was really good. Um, the, the downfall of it was... Uh, basically the very first show we ever did it was a rat la guns contraband and bang tango tour and we were playing the sunrise music theater in um in uh wherever that is in florida and uh the singer uh during the first song his monitors weren't loud enough and he just walked off stage you know in front of a you know there was six thousand people i believe sold out show and michael shanker just looked at me like like he was going to, you know, die. You know, he was just like, Oh my God, what do we do now? You know? And, uh, I think I ended up just, we did red house and I had to sing. And, uh, and instantly from that moment, as soon as we were done with the song, I found him hiding in the back of a, of a dressing room and, uh, I threw a table at him and Alec Kovac, Alan Kovac walked in and gave him 200 bucks and said, well, you know, that was nice while it lasted, you know, see you later. And that was the end of it. You know, it, it's just like, you can't do that. You know, you have to be professional. Um, 
when there's a lot on the line, you know, I mean, if we were playing, you know, a small club and, and people are just having a party and everything like that, that's one thing, but it was the debut show of something that was becoming very successful. And, uh, it was, it was I'm glad it happened then and not later because, uh, it's better to find out things sooner than later. But yeah. I, um, and, and the funny thing is I didn't really, listen to that record much like i don't any record when i first do it but uh later on i listen to that record it's a damn good record it really is a good record and and one of my interests in that is that i'm a huge huge scorpions fan so whenever i see that in fact mm -hmm. i i interviewed my um rudolph just this week in fact uh -huh. um whenever i hear the name shanker i get i, I get excited so what was it like yeah. working with michael shanker because there are there's always been stories and but for you as a guitar, and I'll, I'll call you what you are, a guitar god, you, you play very well. Um, what was it like to be in a band with Shanker? Do you learn from him? Do you say, oh, man, do you teach him stuff? Um, what, what did he bring to you? Uh, well, you know, he's a pretty, he, he was sober, 100% sober during the whole time when we were doing the recording and then, you know, on the road together for a couple months. And, uh, you know, we just became, uh, I, would, I would say, good acquaintances, you know, um, uh, you know, we, we, you know, that I, I'm an animal <laughs> you know? and, uh, you know, he is maybe an animal in his own right, certainly his guitar playing. Um, but, you know, I spent a good part of my late teen years, uh, playing along with Michael Shanker, particularly the strangers in the night record. He is absolutely one of my favorite guitar players. And, um, so, you know, doing the record with, I was in awe of him the whole time. You know, it's like, I don't know, if uh, Steve Vai got to do a record with Eddie Van Halen when he was 23, you know what I mean, kind of a thing. And, um, you know, I always cherish that time. And then I see him every now and then, and, you know, still really friendly. And and uh, I have not ever seen him go off the rails or any of the, the claims that people make about him. You know, right. I, I have very good memories of Michael and, and you know, Particularly, you know, you, you brought up the Scorpions, you know, I mean, that was a huge part of, of my, my guitar learning time as a teenager as well. Yeah. Uh, in fact, uh, okay, I'll, since we're, we're on Scorpion stuff, uh, Uli John Roth, one of your heroes? Mm -hmm. Is Absolutely. He? Oh, yeah. yeah. Okay. Sa Sales of Sharon, Dark Lady, you know, all those things, you know. I, there was, there was a, th a time where I was very young, 15, and Rat had an ad in, uh, well, we had a local paper called The Recycler, and they were looking for a guitarist. And uh, and I called, and I didn't know it was Rat till later. And, and it was Robin that answered the phone. And and uh, I said, hey, you know, I want to try out for your band. And he goes, got to have a Marshall stack, a Flying V, and, and we'll audition you with Mr. Crowley and uh, Sales of Sharon. And I was like, well, I could play that, but I, I have a Flying V, but I don't have a Marshall stack too bad kid you know and uh you know so like everybody was like knew that that was the top of the line you know what i mean if you could do that uh then you could be in any metal band at the time and uh you know but it's just a funny story you know relating to yuli which i still call him Ulrich. yeah that's my last name yeah he's great um <laughs> I know we're going to run out of time, so I'll just I'll finish with this then, uh, and, and maybe we'll do another one down the road where we'll talk about all these other bands, Brides of Destruction and Devil City Angels. But sure, um, Man in the Moon, Walking the Dead, two thousand one, two thousand two, incredible mm -hmm. albums. Um, just take me back to the Walking the Dead album. Uh, 
are you proud of that album? And, and talk to me a little bit about it. And then at what point after it came out, you say, you know what? I, I got to just go be Tracy for a while. I got to walk away for a while. Well, uh, Waking the Dead is my favorite L.A. Guns record. It's like the first part of this record. You know, uh, they probably fit well together on a road trip. You know what? As, um, as a fan, I would agree. They really are a companion piece. I, they really are. Yeah. Yeah, I would I, I would think so. Um, no, I love Waking the Dead. And um, I needed a break because I needed to get away from the, the horrible decisions that were being made on my behalf of uh, the band at the time. And, um, you know, and that's why Phil's back, because it just took him a lot, a lot longer to realize that. You know, when, when you're selling gold, you know, for a penny on the dollar, you're an idiot. And that's what we were doing. And, uh, you know, it takes a long time. But it, it never had anything musically to do with anything. You know, uh, Man in the Moon in particular was just such a fun record to make, you know, having Gilby engineer it. And uh, that was the first record, uh, Man in the Moon, where I had control, complete control over the songs and the recording and all that stuff. And from that point on, I got very involved in recording and the process and how to make things sound the way they should. And then the next record was Waking the Dead with Andy Johns, who was just a wealth of information, you know, very, very generous with his information and uh, on how to do things. And um, I've carried that with me, you know, for the 12 years since or whatever it's been. And, uh, you know, I just look at the whole thing as just been an education. Yeah, it really has, and and I really wanted to focus on the uh, the new album, the missing piece, and uh, those yeah. those those last three sort of and I'll call them real L.A. Gun albums, not not to insult anybody, mm-hmm. but Man in the Moon, Walk in the Dead, yeah. this one. I mean, it's just it's a trifecta. I mean, it's great stuff. Yeah, you know. Well, don't you think? You know, as you know, I always wondered why artists slip off. You know, and I would think that you would want to improve and get better and learn and, and, and move forward. Um, you know, and, and I think that's all we've done is just kind of not ever rested on our laurels because we, our laurels aren't that big, you know what I mean? Like, you know, we're at best, you know, a large theater band. That's the best we ever were. Um, so we don't have those laurels to just, you know, rest on. So we have to continually try to, to make something spectacular and and still having that little bit of hunger, um, it keeps us excited and, and makes us want to move forward and uh, and leave the past behind. The past is the past, you know. And uh, so every record is the first record. <laughs> and th- in fact, that's a good way to look at it. And 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 I agree. You you've really moved forward. I would actually say, and there's not very many bands. You know, you look at the band Europe, and I would say their last four or five albums are better than the first couple. And I would have mm-hmm. to say that that's probably sure. true with L.A. Guns, where I think Waking the Dead and Missing Peace, and, and that's not to be offensive to the other, but I think they're no, better than the first. Not. I think they're, you know, Hollywood Vampires might be sort of in the mix, but I, yeah. think, I think you've right. just gotten progressively better. So, so, you know, congratulations on that. Yeah. Well, thank you. And a lot of it has to do with the musicians and the band as well. You know, I mean, definitely we had a certain chemistry on the first two, um, Hollywood Vampires, that was Michael James Jackson and me just strong arming, you know, the whole way through, you know, we allied up and we were just like, like, okay, Hey, all you guys with your opinions, there's a waiting room. 
So we were able to achieve that because that record is tremendous. It's different from all the other LA Guns records, but it's a tremendously epic record. Um, and, and just being able to do that and then sneaking other musicians in to play things uh, to make them better, to make them sound like real musicians, you know, we had to do that at times. <clears throat> now, it, it, it's, it's, it's like the musicians that are in L.A. Guns are unbelievable. Um, and we have chemistry. So, you know, it took, you know, 30 years to, to get <laughs> to L.A. Get, Guns right. <laughs> to get it right. Yeah, and, and, I, and I will say that I do think the current lineup with Michael especially, is probably oh, yeah. the strongest lineup I've seen. And that's not to be disrespectful to anybody else, but... No. You no. know. But, I mean, but, it start, but, but music starts with bass and drums. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, especially rock music. You know, guitars and, and vocals are just... They're, they're, the, they're the icing on the cake, man. But when, you, but when you got, you know, Shane and Johnny, who, you know, Johnny's like everything from Motown to Iron Maiden, and, you know, Shane is just a gospel drummer who, you know, his favorite band is Mars Volta and Led Zeppelin. And he's still learning every day. And, and you know, he's 100 times better than any musician, period, I've ever played with. And, you know, so when you have that level of, uh, of knowledge and wanting and feel and hunger, you know, it's an explosion. You know, and that's like, you know, all the bands that, that I grew up on you know starting with you know the who and, and hendrix and that stuff those bands were exploding on stage they were literally on fire and i can't have it any other way you know i can't stand on stage with people that are just you know getting the job done i want that shit to sound different every night you know it's uh it's important to me as a musician to feel like we're constantly moving, you know, whether it's moving backwards, forwards, whatever, we're moving and it's alive and it's a breathing organism. And uh, I'll always be that way. I figured it out. I'm 51 now, you know, so, <laughs> it you know took I'm, not a while. Ever, I'm not ever going to change. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, uh, and, yeah, but I love that. And I'll, I'll say this, too, is having known that Michael was an end ever after and having known that he was the leader in his band. But I also know that you're the leader of your band. I was concerned when I saw the band in Ottawa, you know, is mm -hmm. Tracy going to give him any room or is it just going to be, hey, this is the Tracy show and you stand over there. And it was anything no. but that. It was two guys oh, yeah. that were locked in, playing off of each other as good as Brad Whitford, Whitford and uh, Joe Perry. Just You knew when yeah. to stop and he knew when to start and vice versa. And it, you're right. Oh, it's yeah. explosive. It's absolutely explosive. And and, and the greatest thing about that is none of it's planned. You know, we have, we have spots in the set list where we know that we're going to do these things, but they, they change length and key from night to night. And, you know, we're, that's how, how well Michael and I work together is, you know, there's not even a, an understanding. It's just, it's a, it's a musical flow. And, you know, now we got him doing uh, Purple Rain again in the set, which he used to do. And uh, it gives me the opportunity, you know, to, to stand there and watch the guy play for five or six minutes, man. And, and it's just, he brings so much to the table, it's not even funny. Yeah, I agree. And uh, Tracy, great pleasure. And of course, for fans out there, The Missing Piece comes out October 13th. And I will say this today, it is probably going to be the best rock record you will hear this year. End of story. <laughs> True. I hope so. <laughs> well, I, I, I really listen. I, I get 
hundreds of records every, and I just can't think of anything off the top of my head that has been as good this year. And we're now talking end of August here, so we'll see. Maybe something will come out in wow. November that'll beat you. But for now, it could. Good, <laughs> but for now, listen. If if worse comes to worse, it'll certainly be top three of the year. And it's, there you go. Yeah. I'll I'll take it. I'll take top one hundred. There you go, <laughs> Tracy. Great pleasure. <laughs> Th- thank you for everything, and uh, hopefully we'll yeah, see you in you uh, Canada soon. And uh, oh, great yeah. record, great great record. Well done. Thanks, Mitch. I'll talk to you soon, buddy. Thank you. Cheers. Bye. Bye bye. You're listening to Rock Talk with Mitch Lafon. Rock Talk. Mitch here. Are you in the market for a new car and want to see what others have paid? Well, in order to feel comfortable that you are getting a fair price, you need pricing context. Information that empowers you to feel confident. With True Car, you will see what other people in your local market paid for the car you want. From there, you can connect with a local True Car certified dealer and enjoy a more confident car buying experience. Using TrueCar, you can easily find the car you want. TrueCar will show you what other people in your area paid for the car you want. Now you know what a fair price is, you can feel confident. Once you register, you'll see real pricing on actual inventory. This is competitive pricing offered to you only by TrueCar certified dealers for an actual vehicle on their lawn. It's pricing you'll see before going to a dealership so you can feel confident when you show up. With True Car, you can connect with a local certified dealer of your choosing so you can enjoy a quick, easy buying experience. True Car customers are more likely to enjoy a faster buying process when they connect with True Car certified dealers. True Car users save an average of $3,000 off MSRP. When you're ready to buy, visit True Car to enjoy a more confident car buying experience. Some features not available in all states. Here at Podcast One, we love hearing from you. We read every tweet and comment you send our way. So don't miss your chance to take our summer listener survey. Just go to podcastone.com and click on the survey banner. Or go to podcastone.com slash mysurvey. It only takes a few minutes, and it gives you the opportunity to make a direct impact on your favorite shows. Tell us how you really feel so we can get to know you better. We value your thoughts and participation. So check out the survey at podcastone.com slash mysurvey. Or click on the survey banner on podcast. Now back to Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. Welcome back to Rock Talk and a big, big thank you to Tracy Guns for that great, great interview. The new album, The Missing Piece, comes out in October. You must absolutely check that out. Before we get to our next interview with Slim Jim Phantom of the Stray Cats, and of course, who doesn't remember the Stray Cats? Um... Have you ever wondered about how to become a publicist and what their work is and how they sort of accomplish that? Well, I have. And so on the phone, I have got Simon Photo of Six Media Marketing. They are in Quebec or in Montreal. They've been working the Canadian leg of the Sticks tour. And uh, Simon, pleasure to have you. And who else have you been working with recently? Hey, Mitch. Uh, nice to be on it. So yeah. It's an honor and a pleasure. Yeah. Uh, working with Sass, Jordan, Anathema, we did Colin James, Stephen Wilson last year, Men Without Hats this summer, which I thought was a 
fantastic for me. Uh, the stick store was a highlight of my career, which uh, spans about 32 years yeah. by now. Uh, did Alice Cooper way back when? Worked with Halford. Yeah, you know, uh, well, we do let a lot me get. Gas, let, we do we do a bunch of stuff. Let me get to that one. You were the first person to ever set me up with a Rob Halford interview, and it was uh, one of the most memorable interviews. We were, I think, it was at the Ritz Carlton. Right. That's exactly right. Yeah. And uh, we went up to his hotel room, and he said, uh, "Hey, you know," and and spent an hour, and I think. 10 minutes was interview and 50 minutes was talking about all kinds of great stuff. Just me and Halford one-on-one talking about metal and life. And, <laughs> and it was, he was just the coolest. I could not believe that I was actually working with Halford. Same with, you know, Alice was the same thing for me. I mean, yeah. I, I did book him on the Timon on Pile, the big TV show here yeah. that we have. And it, it's, to this day, it's the pinnacle of my career. So, and it's, to me, it was like, because I'm a fan first. I'm a PR guy. Always been, but I'm a fan first. Yeah, same thing with me. Fan first, podcast guy, or whatever, interviewer yep. second. But so, so talk to me because, you know, I went the route of, of interviewing rock stars and being the podcast guy and, you know, the Brave Words guy before that and, and all this other stuff. How do you become a publicist? Like, what was the route? And, and well, in my case, uh, yeah, in my case, it was a bit of a, out of necessity because I used to be an artist way back when, uh, started in '85 and did you know the whole club thing, then went solo, whatever that means. At some point, released a record in 1993, went nowhere have. really, you know, which went nowhere really fast. And then at some point, you know, you've got a family and you know, bills to pay and stuff. So you go, okay, so I gotta gotta work and do something. So I did the basic, you know, route of working at HMV and record stores, label distribution. And at some point I really wanted to do press and promo and promote all these, these artists and, and band, not only sell them, but also promote them. And then at one point I just said, well, I'm going to try and do this. And then I ended up at Fusion 3, which was a distribution company. Uh, and they hired me to be the in-house publicist. And it really started there for me. That was really one of the... It's, you know, my 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 stone was really there. I did a few before that, but my real you know my real start was really there. And then um, from there, it just leads me to today. Yeah, and and it's interesting because it's sort of the same route for me. I mean, I was never an artist that that had an album, but I just always wanted to promote these bands. I wanted to tell people, hey, this new Kiss album is fantastic. Hey, this new Scorpions album is fantastic, and. As Metal Edge magazine disappeared, and as some of you know, Circus mag, and as those magazines started disappearing, there was like, well, there's nobody out here to shout from the rooftops that there's a new Scorpions album. So I sort of said, right. well, I'm going to start doing it, you know, and and it, it it gave to this. Now, so when you have a band like Styx uh, come through town, which they just did in uh, Montreal and in the rest of Quebec. What are some of the more essential things that you have to do? What What is sort of a, a day-to-day setup? Is it just basically booking interviews, or is there all kinds of other responsibilities? Uh, in their case, it's really booking interviews, but you have to choose their interviews because you they don't adapt to you. You adapt to them, which I think is actually great. Here's the schedule. Here's the time that we have. So pick and choose the media and the interviews you're going to do and make sure that they're good because you want to have the most impact with the little time that you have available from them because they're on the road all the time. Right. Um, in this particular case with Sticks, they have Gowan, who's a wonderful uh, interviewee, 
Um, I agree. I've interviewed him. You know, he he talks a lot. He's always available. He's in a good spirit, good mood. He'll give you what you want. Uh, He's great. But, uh, you know, he's not going to do 20 a day. So basically, I had to, the first thing is to send out the press release. Make sure people know that the band's coming to town. Then sit down and do your plan. Say, okay, I'm going to try and, and, you know, go for this guy, this guy, this guy as a target in print, then podcast, then radio, and then do we have a chance of doing TV, which in the case of Six, we didn't, uh, just because we just didn't have the availabilities. Um, but obviously, TV is always a, one of the big things that you try to land because it is a media that has immense power, uh, even still to this day, um, which is why when I did the, you know, when I did the Alice Cooper at, on the, on the TV show here in Montreal on Sunday night with, with almost 2 million people watching, everybody remembers because Alice is the king of interviews. Right? Oh, yeah, he is. And I love Alice. He, he, he's the guy who gives you 15 minutes hard interviews and it's great. It's, you, know, you, know, you know where you're going. So, and then we'll finish with this here because there's a lot of webzines and, and, and internet people and, and everybody's got a podcast now. How do you sort of separate which ones you choose? Like, what's sort of the criteria? But at the same time, you know, there are some newer podcasts and newer web websites that deserve a chance. How do you decide which one gets that chance and, and which ones are just like, Look, I'm not going to deal with this? And, and how can a website guy out there go, okay, I need to convince Simon or Simon that I, I'm worthy um, of a shot? It's really down, I think, to... Um credibility either you know on my end it's the same thing i have to be credible as a publicist when i talk about something if a podcast or a a website or a journalist even they have to be they have to to show that they have credibility and that what they're going to do maybe they don't draw millions and millions of viewers but they will reach the core of the fans that you're trying to reach and to me that's really really important and I'll also right. look at who's a, who's a real fan, who's going to actually know what they're talking about. And this is just not like, a, you know, the clickbait stuff. I, I don't go for this personally. Yeah, neither do I. Do. I don't, you know, I don't. Um, and, I mean, obviously you always go with, you know, the, the big dailies and you try and you, you, you throw the line and then you see who, you know, who will bite and who won't bite. And then you sort of build your schedule out of that. Um but really, I would say credibility is the main thing. I mean, show to, to, to me, it's not necessarily also to me, it's also to the band and to the management. Because, I mean, ultimately, I can send requests all day long, but management and, or somebody's going to be looking at the schedule I send and go, mm, no, not that one. Mm, no, not yeah, that one. Yeah, you're sending a lot, of, a lot of hokey you know, pokey, you know, right? Yeah, yeah, and it doesn't look big enough. You go, yes, but it doesn't matter. Also, because the other thing, too, is, again, for me, that's one thing that I look at is a, a blogger or a website one day may end up on, you know, national TV, national radio, national broadcast, national somewhere. So I like to take care of or, or the Jericho network or the Jericho. network. <laughs> no, but that, but that's it. Do you, do you research some of the sites? Like, do you, will you go look at, you know, whatever rockmusic.com and say, Okay, I like what this guy's doing. I'll, I'm going to throw him a bone and, and give him a chance. Sure, of course. Okay, of course. so of course. So then, I guess for 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 the starter uppers out there, it's have a good website, have good content, have good presentation. If it sort of looks Mickey Mouse, they're not getting that sticks interview. 
Yeah, and then the first thing that we all do probably by now is you on Facebook. Okay, what does he look like? How many likes on the page? How many followers? How many this? I mean, if you have, you know, 152 followers, you haven't posted in three months. Like, eh. Yeah, don't bother not worth it. Yeah. Don't bother, you know? So. Yeah, so there you go. Uh, Simon, a great pleasure. And, yeah. Anytime. It's a, it's a fun job. Yeah, it really is. It, it, it looks like fun, and... And I've always thought that if I wasn't doing the interview thing, maybe I would try to go into it to that. But uh, I have got an interview with one of your artists coming up, Bruce Coburn, which should be uh, up in the next uh, few weeks. And uh, anybody else you're working with currently that I should be aware of? Uh, we got Chris DeBerg coming to town. We've got Daniel Lanois coming to town very Ooh. soon as well, nice. uh, which is going to be very cool. Um, Chris DeBerg, third, would, second or second or third time, uh, Chris DeBerg would be awesome. By the way, Chris DeBerg would be an, a great interview. Uh, if so, we'll we'll talk off air about making that happen. And of well, course, I, uh, I, I'm writing this down as uh, as, as we speak. speak. So. And of course, Sass Jordan has uh, a new tour and album, so that's uh, always a plan. new tour and album. She'll be uh, touring all through the uh, the end of the year and early next year. Um, Colin James was awesome to work with earlier this year as well. Um, and we do a lot of stuff. I mean, the website, a shameless plug here, sixmedia.ca is, uh, is what we do. And we do all kinds of stuff to rock, to jazz, to world music. And so it's uh, all about for the love of music. Yeah, it really it's is what we're here for. That's what we're all here for. And mm-hmm. uh, if, you, if you really love music, stick around for Slim Jim Phantom. He gave me 45 minutes. Great conversation about his entire career, including Head cat with uh, Lemmy from Motorhead. And uh, there you go. Thank you, sir. Always a pleasure, mon ami. And uh, we'll talk soon. And I will be right back with Slim Jim Phantom. You're listening to Rock Talk with Mitch LaFon. Rock Talk. And uh, we are back for a man that needs no introduction from the Stray Cats. It is a Slim Jim Phantom. He, of course, has a book that came out not too long ago called A Stray Cat's Strut, My Life as a Rockabilly Rebel. Worked with Lemmy in Head Cat. Um, you know, what else can he say? Here is the one, the only, Slim Jim Phantom. We are speaking with Slim Jim Phantom, formerly of the Stray Cats. Well, uh, still. Yeah, still. I was going to say, is... There was a farewell. Let's start with that then. There was a farewell tour, but is it still an active entity? I mean, I know Brian Setzer has said in interviews that yes, you're going to do something together again. Is that a hope or is that a soon-to-be reality? Well, in rock and roll, you know, I don't care who you are. It's kind of everyone's at the mercy of the singer always. So um, I, you know, I hope so. I mean, we do it usually every five five years or so it's been a little bit longer this time so um i mean there's no reason not to everyone's got their hair nobody ever sued each other no one ever ran off with any wives no one's on drugs so <laughs> yeah, anything's it's... possible after those few things in rock and roll <laughs> <laughs> well I, I certainly hope it happens because it's been an interesting career so let, let, let's go back to to the book and then we'll work our way back through different sure. events and stuff uh a stray cat strut my Life as a Rockabilly Rebel uh, came out in 2016, almost a year ago, August 16th of 2016. Yeah, I had a couple little delays. I think it was right around, yeah, now, September, October, uh, August. So, so, so first of all, talk to me about that process because I've, I've read a few interviews and I've had a look at the book and, and there's no ghostwriter. This is you who wrote it. That was one of the things is that I didn't, 
I mean, there might be a few other um, people out there, but nine out of ten, you'll see it's someone tells a story to a in former rock journalist or you know someone like that, and um, they put it into words and make it sound like it's in the voice of kind of thing. I wouldn't let them do that, and um, on a few levels, but um, really I thought I could do it myself, which is really hard. Maybe in hindsight you should have just let somebody do it and sign off, but it was very hard work. Um, and, and the whole concept of it for me was not to do um, the standard kind of jumping out of a helicopter, parachuting with hookers and, you know, while smoking free base while you're, you know, scuba diving with the... You know, I I, I I had to do something a little bit different because there's so many guys that have a better that kind of story than I do. Right. Um, but um, um, we have enough of that in there. But it's a little bit. It, I I wanted to uh, to show a little bit of a lighter side, maybe like an NC17 version of it of of Hard Day's Night kind of thing, more than uh, just a complete tale of the rainbow and chicks and you know, it's just. Kind of, kind of been done before, but um, and that's not my story anyway. Like, uh, I I have a little bit more of the story. I was doing the crossword puzzle with Lammy in the back of the bus. You know, everyone's done drugs with Lammy, so it's so. Yes, I owned the nightclub on Sunset Boulevard for for a very long time, but my kids were doing the homework at the desk. It was a bit, you know, irony, I suppose, maybe is the right word. But um, I wanted them all to have a little punchline in the stories. So 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 talk to me about organizing this because you know did you, did you keep diaries uh, over the years and then you went back or is just just a lot of memories and was it mostly just to sort of tell anecdotes along the way or or, or sort of what was the the concept behind the book well it came in a funny way because i think it may be rock Bios were a little bit in vogue maybe a couple of years ago. Uh, everyone seemed to have one. It was, and it's a little bit like a record company when there's a, um, a certain genre, like a, you know, like a rockabilly band is having a hit and each label feels the need to go sign, sign one kind of thing. So, um, but luckily I, I, I had very, very uh, nice people at, um, at a major publishing house that came out on St. Martin's. That's a real, it's a real place. Like I say, I might have a book on St. Martin's. Oh, St. Martin's. It's got a little bit of weight just by the name. So um, um, I, what had happened is I had written some liner notes for a friend of mine who was not on St. Martin's. It's on a uh, like smaller imprint. And um, the agent, Dana Newman, who was the star of the show for me, that his, his agent was collecting the liner notes. So I wrote mine, of course, I waited to the last minute and he said come on dude i need to turn it in and i just wrote like four or five sentences of rock journalism you know the majesty of rock and the you know the relative rhythm of the role meets the you know <laughs> boom, boom. so i turned that into his agent and she really liked it and said have you ever written i said well no it's one of those things that if you never do it you never fail kind of thing because at this point in life, I'm a little bit like the Fonz. Like, un unless I'm good at it, I'm not going to really show my ass at this point. I could do two or three things and be cool and be good at them and earn a living from it. So if I don't have to get embarrassed, what's the point, right? So, um, but I always thought I could write. So I psyched myself up for it and wrote, um, she said, write a chapter. So, so I wrote the first chapter, which was um, just trying to remember stories. And I never kept journals, but... Um, I, I I just tried to remember stuff, and as as I go along, I was writing on a, 
on a legal pad, which I've always done. So if you look at my desk, there's 20, 30 legal pads with, you know, Call Jonesy, uh, uh, milk, dog food, um, story about Lemmy. You know, I, I just list everything, and then once every few days I go through the lists and do what I got to do. Um, so I wrote a story about Lemmy, who was my dearest pal. Um, that goes way back. This was in 1980, 81 in London, um, where um, uh, basically the story is he and I going out and playing the slot machines in the casinos in London, and 20 pages later. We're paying the taxi driver in coins. So, but it's the middle 20 pages in between that of where we went, who else was there, what band we saw uh, first, what pub we went to, and where we had to stop on the way to the casino to stay awake on the it just the story of that night kind of thing. But I used it as to pretty much paint the picture of what 1981 would have been in London at that time. So that's how I tried to approach all the stories when I came up with the concept. Each of them have like a beginning, a middle, and then like a little bit of a punchline at the end. So, um, and I tried to do that with everyone. And like what the book people really want is they want stories of the most famous. So I just found 25 most famous people that I had adventures with, you know, and, and, and you know, and, and threw them in there. Yeah. And somehow I remember the story, but like, um, for me, a lot of those people that you've had regular adventures with are, kind of pop culture famous people. So, like Lammy, had quite a few adventures with Keith Richard and um, uh, uh, George Keith Harrison. Jones, and I was, George was a, was a total pal. Yes, he was. And um, so, for me, luckily, I could tell just ordinary kind of tales of everyday, you know, life, but these happen to be fantastic people. And um, so, if someone calls you and you get in your car and you drive and you have lunch and you go back and you say goodbye, well, that's not much of a story. But it was with George Harrison, so it makes it a story kind of thing. So, um, so I was a little bit fortunate with that, um, uh, that I, I had some good subjects that are interesting people. You don't have to describe so much. You don't have to describe Lemmy. You just have to say, I went to Lemmy's house. Okay, I can imagine what Lemmy's house <laughs> So some of your work is already done. But um, So anyway, she really liked that story. She said, write another one. So I wrote uh, – the second one I turned in was um, – um, uh, I did a solo record with Lee Rocker in the, um, when one of the first times the Stray Cats were taking a break and we called, I called Keith Richards, who we had known cause we had been on the Rolling Stones tour in 81 with them. That was all another adventure thing. Yeah. But I called Keith, just asked, you know, if you don't try, you never find out. Could you play on this song that I've written? You would sound great on it, blah, blah. Where, well, I'm in New York and he goes, he happened to be able to do it. it. It just all lined up. It was near where he was going. He was lived, and it was on the night that he was off, and it just all kind of lined up. So he came and he played on the solo record. Yay! And wow. how do you pay Keith Richards? Yeah. You write him a check. You give him the union money. You give him like an envelope with money. Like it's really kind of a tough one. So I had this jacket that he liked, a leopard skin jacket. So. He said, I love that jacket. I thought, here, take my jacket, man. <laughs> it didn't fit him. My arms were too long. It looked funny on him. So, oh, well, thanks anyway. So I never paid him for the session. So a couple months go by, I had an idea that his manager, Jane Rose, is a fantastic character. She measured him when he was asleep in the office one day. Called me, got the measurements. I gave him to Glenn Palmer, the tailor, and we made Keith an exact jacket. That's how we paid him back. 
So <laughs> that's a know, great story. That, that's that's a story. And then you know, I would tell the punchline, but the jacket resurfaced a couple of years later. So I'm have to read the book to get the punchline. But so it was just things like that. So all right, you got your friend the jacket. So what? Yeah, but the friend was Keith Richards. These things help. So. <laughs> Yeah, they do. Now, listen, uh, just before we started, I mentioned that I've been trying to get you on the phone for a good 10 or 15 years, and, and there's a lot of questions I had. So so let me sort of, sure, of randomly work my way through them. Um, the Stray Cats uh, album came out in 81. Talk to me about the musical direction, because we're looking at a time where disco had waned, um, punk had sort of taken over, there was the big showy rock bands like Kiss and Alice Cooper. Uh, we're doing the whole new wave thing. There's My Sharona, The Police, The Cars are all getting their start. None of them are doing rockabilly. The closest thing we had at the time was the movie Grease had come out, you know? Right. Um, uh, how, how did you fall into to rockabilly, and, and how did you get picked up by a label? I mean, did they not look at you and say, mm, what are you doing? Yeah, well, everyone did. It was kind of, we found the music a little bit, the back door, the side door, um, from being real musicologists, you know, a nerd type guy. We all were musicians in our town, uh, Massapequa on Long Island, about 45 minutes outside New York City. Um, and uh, we were always those guys. We always played. Since I was 11, 12, 13, you know, played the school dance, and then in high school, you, we were the guys who would play at the rec dance and the keg party and the and the battle of the bands. And when someone's parents were out of town, they snuck the band into the basement. And then Lee's parents were very nice. We used to play at the play in their garage every night and practice. And girls would come over, so we were always those guys, and um, with an eye on doing it as a living. Some somehow, I mean, you couldn't really quite imagine making an album that was way too for me if i had gotten a couple of jobs on the weekend playing in a band and worked in the drum shop in the city that that was really really enough kind of, so but um so we um found rockabilly really through classic rock um if you look um you know imagine yourself being album uh album sleeve guy um yeah you have the beatles record and who's C. Perkins, song by C. Perkins. Oh, the one that Ringo sings, C. Perkins. Carl Perkins, oh, what's that? Blue Suede Shoes, I kind of heard that one. Yeah, it's cool. The Who, Summertime Blues, E. Cochran. Who's, who's Eddie Cochran? Um, I don't, he, he really wasn't on the uh, radar so much. Um, uh, the Rolling Stones, Not Fade Away. Who's B. Holly? Right. On the live album, C. Berry, is Chuck Berry, okay, I heard Johnny B. Good, right? So all this is in live time kind of kind of thing. You're trying to find a new thing to to kind of do. Um, I, I, I had a few older cousins, and they used to lend me their record. I had a, uh, one had Blind Faith, and it had a Buddy Holly song on it. One had the Stones, and I had, you know. So, so there's all these little references coming together at the same time. And then um, uh, turned on to the the first Elvis Presley record, and ever, of course everyone knew Elvis Presley. Although this would have been after he died, but not too far afterwards. I um, I would have just been aware of like the later period of Elvis. I was like, well, some famous guy He's on TV, He's, you know, to be a you know oldies kind of guy. But the, anyhow, I got turned on to the first Elvis Presley record, and that's when really it all just 
completely came into place. Like it really made sense that this is what what I should do, that we should do. We were all like kind of finding out about the same time, and um, it just changed my life at that point. I went into the city, got all my hair. Uh, Cut off, left my hair on the floor, went across the street to Trash and Vaudeville, got a pair of creepers and left my sneakers behind, went up the street to Andy's Cheapies and took my flare jeans off and got some, you know, gray baggy pants and I left those ones behind and I took off my T-shirt and got a bowling shirt, you know, black and white shirt and left the other one on. And I, I just came off uh, St. Mark's Place, a different person. And, like, that was that. And, um, and it was a bit shocking, I guess, t- to those around me, but it was... The other two were having similar experiences. Luckily, one played bass and one played the guitar, and they were both way ahead of everyone musically. Those guys are virtuoso types. And um, we started to do what became the Stray Cats really for fun on the side, like doing on the weekends and just find a place to play. And by that time, Brian and I shared a little apartment, not too far from where we grew up, but in the same neighborhood. But um, I was just finding out Eddie Cochran made two albums, you know, and we just pore over those photographs that are tiny on the back of album covers with a magnifying glass. You couldn't really Google Gene Vincent at this point, you know, like you had to kind of research it almost. And um, they didn't have it at Sam Goody's or the local chain. There was a few old school like mom and pop you know, stores that maybe had oldies or jazz records, and we had to find this stuff out really. And it was um, it was a very exciting time. Well, it really was, and, and you know, I was trying to think back in '81. I was 13, and I remember seeing all these different videos, and 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 of course, we didn't have MTV, at least not in Canada. No. It was you know Friday night videos on sure. NBC or something like that. And the Stray Cat Strut and Rock This Town stood out almost like sore thumbs in the sense that it was so different to what everything else that was going on, and. But also so refreshing. So, so talk to me about that first album because you get Dave Edmonds to produce it, right? Yeah. Well, what was happening then is um, we we were in New York. We were playing around. This would have been 1979 to 1980, first half of 80, just playing a lot, four sets a night, five nights a week at like varying bars, places that we could um, plug in, and trying once a month to go to Max's Kansas City or to CBGBs to like get a record deal. And like you said, punk had happened, new wave had happened. There was these, but we were kind of too weird. Um, Greece was not, you know, and it was, first of all, that's not, that was not what we were trying to do. We would have liked the no. soundtrack to American Graffiti kind of thing, but like we were going much deeper. Like Gene Vincent wasn't really on anyone's radar or Carl Perkins besides Blue Suede Shoes, but nobody really knew what anyone looked like or that kind of thing. It wasn't really, it hadn't been uh, uh, resurrected yet. Really had had not been. Um, and we were, uh, you know, funny about like Johnny Burnett and this kind of um, kind of deeper stuff. And um, we were in so full. We walked around this way 24-7. We spent all day trying to find cool threads at the um, thrift stores, going over boxes of old records, trying to find one, you know, compilation from, you know, the Star Day Dixieland album, you know, just that was, and then we played at night, and we just lived it, um, but it wasn't getting ahead as fast as we wanted it to. We're all of 19 years old. I had just turned, well, about to turn 19, and uh, we had gotten copies of the English uh, pop mags, NME, 
Melody Maker, that kind of stuff. So we went, and we thought that somehow everything that we wanted was in England. No idea. I hadn't. I'd never been to England. I'd never. I, I was never on a plane before. Um, so we decided to sell everything and get one-way tickets to London because that's where it is. There's, there's King's Rock and it's uh, King's Road and there's punk rock and so we were just convinced of this. So we went and then we, of course, you get off the plane. Now what? You said it was a good idea. No, you said it was a good idea. So we're in a foreign country. Luckily, they spoke English, but we didn't know anything. You know, dragging around a string bass. Like a guitar, a drum, and like bags of cool clothes. That was really all we had. And um, so we we kind of roughed it, you know. We slept. It, w- it was a summertime. By now, this is June into July. Uh, we're in London. We're sleeping outside in the park. We're um, finding, uh, you know, squat houses, Sid and Nancy kind of world, and, you know, just ro- kind of roving and um, meeting people at parties and any gigs we could get into free we would stash the thing someplace some house we found that was abandoned you stash the base in there and go out that night and so we really just hustled around and knocked on a bunch of doors and finally after a few months of this um there was a few of the pub owners that they have five seven bands a night sorry four in the afternoon all night and all right these guys um uh have been coming around bugging everyone they look incredible they um we had pink and black suits on, but they were like dirty kind of thing, and we were still hungry. We couldn't really eat that much, you know, like when you wanted to. And so, so they agreed to finally let us open up, up some shows. Um, so we would play four or five in the afternoon, and the ten people that we had met at the parties came down, and we were bugging. And said, well, maybe these guys will go home. Maybe they'll uh, be good. Maybe they'll shut up. Maybe that'll be the. So we played, and we were very good at it. Really, at the end of the day, we've been doing four sets a night, five nights a week in New York for a year, year and a half. So if someone says your whole future is in the next 10 minutes, go play, you know, a Gene Vincent song and rock this town. We were like, well, that we can do, <laughs> you know, and the 10 people that were in the audience were Lemmy, Chrissy Hine, her boyfriend was Ray Davies. Then he, she brought him, uh, strummer, Matt Locke, you know, it was all, all those people who we had met and they come and they see us play. And it's, it was really game over it was like these guys are really something different that no one had seen before was standing up and playing the drums he's spinning the bass over his head brian standing on top of the bass drum playing behind his neck shredding rockabilly no one had ever seen this before so um so that led to like pretty big buzz around london and then these people back then again there was seven music papers every week so the next time the melody maker is speaking to ray davis he says i saw this band last week and they're like eddie cochran 2000 you know um and then, of course, Strummer talks to the NME, and, oh, so these guys, and they're the real thing. They live on the street, and they play rock and roll. So we, it was a built-in story. And uh, on one of those memorable gigs in London, one of those first ten shows or so, um, Edmonds came. And um, he's he's still the um, star of the show for, for me, because maybe the others a little more than me, but we didn't really know how to make a record. I mean, I didn't know. I said, was there a mic on the snare drum for you? You can hear it fine. I thought you only mic'd the singing. <laughs> I didn't really know how to make a record. And um, so um, he wanted to do it. And at the same time, there was a lot of record companies buzzing around because, again, it's a small enough scene there that when, once uh, someone hears about it, everybody hears about it. So um, so people starting to come down. And then one night, uh, however they heard about it, the the, the the Stones came, all of them. Had a table in a nightclub, 
to see some band who's not even the headline band. All the Rolling Stones are there. So after the show, we get whisked over to their table, and there's paparazzi, and pretty much that was that took it from being music paper kind of news to NME. That took it to the Daily uh, Mirror, you know. That was like national news. The Rolling Stones are some band, and they're from America, and they and they're homeless. And, you know, it just it was a built-in story. So um, the original plan was going to have them produce it and be on their label, and it, it was right. it Rolling was Stone Records. Organized. Yeah, which they had, I think, in the eighties, late seventies, maybe. With um, Peter Tosh on there. Yeah, Peter Tosh was. On, I don't know how much, and I think they put their own records out on it too. Correct. Um, uh, so, but it was kind of hard to organize it after that with with them. But it made for some great adventures, and that's in the book too. We would meet with them individually. Well, here's lunch with McChain, and the next day we went to Keith's house down in the country. And this, so it was hard to get everyone organized in the first place. But their kind of love of it and their blessing, I suppose, um, um, really, really made it take off. And um, the buzz. So. Um, one of those shows, Edmonds was there, and he really wanted to do it. And at that point, we had gone with one of the labels. That seen, again, all this is in live time. So EMI agreed to do it, and Edmonds agreed, and, went, and it all kind of lined up. So it was almost at once, the whole thing. Um, so we made the record deal and then went, with it, it went, went in the studio kind of the next day. Arista, it was. Um, it was EMI after that, um, but the first one was Arista, and um, you know, and luckily Dave was that guy. Again, it was part of the story that you couldn't write. He was like Sam Phillips, and he was searching for like Sam. Not to put myself in the same category, but he was like Sam Phillips was trying to find Elvis Presley. You know, he was waiting for that exact artist that could produce the sound that he had in his head. And Dave had done a lot of stuff. He had been a like a veteran or the um making great records and kind of kind of unique records but he needed someone to 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 do his vision and we came from long island and all of a sudden we're in england and um so uh so it worked out it, like he kind of immediately knew that we were the thing that was going to scratch his itch you know and we kind of needed an adult in the room really um and and it just worked out it was it, it was really kind of a um you know kismet it was really like a lucky thing that happened meeting him it, it really is and um let me throw some more random stuff sure. at you here memorial day weekend 1983 everybody looks at the us festival and we think because a lot has been made about ozzy osbourne being there and motley Crue being there and and, and judas sure. priest and scorpions and van halen that, that that heavy metal day seems to be what a lot of people remember about that day but the stray cats were there as well um within excess oingo boingo and all talk to me about that experience and the clash Clash, yes mick jones is last last with mick jones yeah um and that seems to be forgotten we all remember van halen because that you know you go to youtube you type you type in us festival and you know van halen pops but talk to me about that event because i mean here we are with easily a half million people if not more that right. show up. Um, it has become sort of musical legend, especially yep. the, the the heavy metal day. What was that like for you? Because, I mean, it was only sort of two years into the career, and here you are sure. on this massive, massive event that, you know, here we are, what is it, 30, 
Help me with the math. Thirty-four yeah. years later, oh, you got me. <laughs> thir- Thirty-four years later, and it's still sort of a current topic, believe it or not. Well, it was another one of those kind of cases where things li- lined up. We had been, um, you know, playing for. I mean, it was eighty-three, was it? Uh, we had been on the on kind of on the road since nineteen seventy-nine. We had done a lot of things. We had done a lot of television. We had done a lot of gigs. We had met a lot of famous people. So we were kind of veterans in a funny way at being very young. We were very good at it. We knew how to do the job. Oh, it's a big stage. You do it this way. If it's in a club, you do it that way. We, we kind of knew all the different, you know. Um, Ins and outs. We could bunt. We could hit home runs. We right. could throw strikes. I mean, we knew the game, and we knew, and we were very good at it. Um, I remember very clearly um, uh, uh, that Van Halen was the next day, and they all came early. And Edward's my buddy, and like met him that day. It was full on like helicopter kind of day, you know what I mean? Like he came in a helicopter with the new suit, and you get out, and you, you know, the chopper's blowing over your head, and, uh, and you know, it's like a few rock stars standing around. So Van Halen liked to party. I was a party guy, so we, I've got quite a lot of photographs of he, he and I hanging out, and it was our day. And uh, I think the day that we went, they were trying to make it, um, for lack of a better thing, like New Wave Day. Right, New Wave and Day. If you look back on it now, everyone was really good. In excess, missing persons, awesome. Fla- uh, Flock uh, of Seagulls. Flock of Seagulls. Like, if you think about it, compared to a festival now, who, who I watch, I don't know any songs. If you tell me the Us Festival, I know two songs by every single person on that bill. Well, you it know, was a different era for pop songs, I think. Good, better, different, you know, like a uh, haircut, whatever the, that other part of it is. But, like, the songs were all memorable hit songs. But it was also a different era for, for festivals, because I go to a lot of festivals now, and right. it seems to me that they front-load it, you know, from 1 o'clock to, like, 7 o'clock with anybody who'll play, and then right. they'll have one headliner, whereas sure. you look in the 80s or, you know, Reading Festival in the 70s, it was like, no, at 1 o'clock we start, but it's a massive band followed by a massive band followed by a massive yeah. band, and... We don't do that Maybe anymore. Maybe it's because of radio being differently. I'm not sure like how many hit songs there are anymore. Like yeah, that's what we true. maybe we're one of the last of the year. Like the Stray Cats, like for rock and roll, if you want to go back and look at charts or radio, or billboard, whatever, like it it was like thriller, rock this town, like a virgin, like it was in the like what we used to call AM radio. Like right. that's what it, that was really crossing over. Like you wouldn't have seen particularly um, Led Zeppelin in that chart, but Van Halen did. It was different times, I think, when were, when rock was crossing over a little bit. To and and the Stray Cats are still, I think, the only rockabilly band that's really made it through like that. Um, but um, the good thing that's always been about this band for me as a musician is that it's credible amongst. It straddles all the fences. I was just in um, Germany just last week. I got home on Tuesday. Um, I played the Wacken Festival. Oh. That's like the heaviest oh, of all yes. festivals. It's the greatest. And I played it doing rockabilly because I was in a band with Lemmy for 20 years almost, our side project. And part of the manifesto was how Motorhead and the Stray Cats are alike, not how they're different. So when I go on the stage, there's 25,000 headbangers. <clears throat> They respect me. I'm an older statesman at mm-hmm. this point, and they know my relationship with Lemmy, and it's like, you know, this might be heavy, and this might be rough, but we can all agree that it's Eddie Cochran. Yeah, we know now, Jim. You know, so, um, so I just did that festival. 
three days ago, and it was fantastic. Yeah. So I think... And very um, well organized. That, that <clears throat> Wacken Festival is, is... Great. I'm yeah. friends with the guys, Thomas and... Five-star rating really on that one. People. Yeah. Yeah. So, but I don't know if any young rockabilly boys could do that right now, but for me, they... They, they accepted and respected me, which is the great thing about the Stray Cats. Since early days in London, in these clubs, we had Lemmy, we had Strummer, we had uh, uh, the guys from the specials there, we had Robert Plant there. With, like Every genre is represented because Rockabilly is the original cool. There wouldn't be any of it if Buddy Holly didn't make records, or certainly Elvis, or uh, Gene Vincent, or Johnny Burnett. Like, there wouldn't Jerry Lee... Little Richard, there wouldn't be the Beatles. So, and everyone says that without the Beatles, there wouldn't be anything. So, this is where the one band that wasn't influenced by that. We were influenced by the ones that influenced them. Yeah. So, um, and that's always come across. And it's still, you know, 100 years later. And I did the heavy metal festival last week, when, and they loved it. So, oh. um, so, I think that's a very fortunate thing when you chose Rockabilly and then Stray Cats is that you're accepted by all the different tribes within rock and roll, I think. And that's always been something I've been very proud of, and I, I'm kind of welcome everywhere. Yeah, because it so sort of is the, the foundation to everything. Now, you did mention uh, Eddie Van Halen, and of course, when people think of guitar heroes and guitar gods, and what, you know, Eddie's name comes up and Randy Rhodes comes up. Sure. Um, but Brian, Brian Setzer b- belongs in that list, too. Talk to me about Brian and his guitar playing, because he, uh, I, you know, sometimes he's left out of that conversation, but he shouldn't be, right? Oh, no, he shouldn't be. He's, uh, my personal opinion, he's, he's the best of them all. I mean, like any of those guys that you just mentioned, and they're all great, and I know them all, um, they play, you know, they're blues guys, you know, who can play really fast. Um, uh, Brian plays, you know, I can remember a very clear hanging out in a hotel room in New York City. We're all t- t- together, and Brian showing Van Halen how to play with your thumb and keep the bass line going while you pick with your fingers, like Chet Atkins, like a rockabilly country jazz guy. Um, uh, it's, it's a different type of shredding, you know. Um, so, uh, and I think if you spoke to Van Halen or any of those guys, they would tell you that too, you know, um, but, um, but the straight cats are very musical and that's something that's always been really kind of part of the story. So, um, I think Brian's as good as anyone really. I mean, he's since we were 11 years old, he was like way above everybody. Yeah, I I agree. And, and by the way, (laughs) Brian, Brian would be a great interview as well at some point. Um, sure. And he sings as well. He sings better than anyone. So, I mean, and he has a look, and he, he was always ahead of the curve when it came to what was cool. So he's, you know, a very important guy. And a great showman. Um, the Cat Club. Uh, mm. it, it, it has since disappeared, but you were the owner. Uh, talk to me about the challenges of owning a rock club at that time and just owning it in general and... What was that experience like for you, being sort of on the other side? You know, being a musician that shows up to a club and then being the club owner that books a musician is not necessarily the same sort of gig. Um, yeah. I mean, I did have a booker for, oh, well, you know, 20 different bookers, and I had a partner who kind of ran the nuts and bolts of it. But, like, it was my joint for sure. And, again, it was just like a funny thing. I didn't do it for, you know, hookers and blow. I was trying to stay home when my kids were little, not go on the road. The 90s would have been. And... 
I, it's kind of all I knew how to do. And we lived down the street, and I kind of thought I could do it, and the lease became available with some funny circumstances, as it always is in Clubland. And, um, but it was a very kind of my kids and I would eat at the Rainbow every night and then walk down to the cat club. They would do their homework upstairs. I would wait until it was their bedtime and the manager, and then I would go home, you know, certain nights. I stood. So it was a funny, again, it was a rock and roll, genuine rock and roll lifestyle, but for honest reasons, it was, you know, uh, organic. And, um, you know, everyone came to the cat club. And, you know, again, it was my way of kind of giving back. It was my way of trying to earn a regular living and stay off the road. And it's funny, I was just in Vakken, and I had to share uh, the vans going back from the hotel to the gig and this and that and the other. And the, uh, the guy from Iron Maiden says, okay, we share a ride with him. Of course, I know those guys. Anyway, he was in the front seat. I was in the back seat. We have an hour drive to the gig. He gets us. Just want to let you know, man, I went to the cat club probably 200 times. <laughs> so, <laughs> That's funny. You know, everyone played there. You think of anyone, you know, that our buddies, everyone knew. And then I did a jam every Thursday, 14 years Every Thursday night, if you got there at midnight, there'd be somebody that you recognize. All the guys from Alice's band, it was funny, we were just there, and Alice played at the, you know, Vodka, and I'm like, well, I had your band, you just paid more than me. It was all the guys that played the Cat Club, and um, someone would always stop by. Lemmy came all the time and played Slash, you know, whoever wanted to talk about it, everyone used to come and play. And it was just, again, it was a genuine thing. No one got rich, you know, uh, um, and no one got paid. It was just, well, it's Slim Jim's place, it's real, that's the thing, it was real. And um, and then, but there was the rest of the nights. So I was open five, uh, seven nights a week, five bands a night for you know nineteen years. So it was. Um, yeah, it, it was a great venue, and I, I had actually been to it, and it, it was funny because I was sitting at a table, and Gilby Clark, I believe, was was sure, doing. Gilby his, was there all the time. He yeah, he was doing. Yeah. I think the well, I think with you actually, the Colonel Parker yeah. stuff. Right. And uh, Tracy Guns of L.A. Guns and uh, Tammy oh, yep. Down of Faster Pussycat yep. came down and Those sat next to me. And I was like, oh, well, ain't this interesting. Um, well, in fact, let's talk about Colonel Parker. That that album that came back, uh, what was it, 2001 Rock and Roll Music, was was definitely a fun album. Um, yeah. uh, talk to me about that project and working with a guy who had been in Guns N' Roses, because at that time... You know, the band had imploded, and, and Axel had sort of gone into, I don't want to say hiding, but he, he wasn't as active as, as fans might have liked. Um, right. What was that like, working with Gilby? Just, well, that was, it came out of the Thursday night, and like, again, Thursday nights was just out of me wanting to make sure the place was packed on, you know, a certain couple hours of the week, because you said the other end of it, like... I mean, if you're a club owner, you're shocked by how many of these goofball bands can't draw five people. You know, I don't want to hear your story. I don't know how many people you have on Facebook. I'm looking at a club. It's Saturday night. Where's your people, man? You know, so right. I have that end of it. Well, I have my art. We've written these news. I don't care. Where's the 35 people and the chicks you're supposed to bring tonight? You know, that's a, so I do know the other end of it. So we would do the jam night again because I like playing and um, Clark was uh, was kind of my partner. Again, all kind of organically. They were the guys were there the night that I did it and we just kept it going. Tracy as well who I just saw last week um, uh, and um, you know Clark is a cool guy because he's very smart in the studio he kind of knows all that stuff he's a very organized kind of guy and so he was perfect for you know doing Thursday nights um, he liked to play uh, he's a social guy and um, it linked, well, you know, Tracy will do it. If Gilby does it, then, you know, we had a, um, 
yeah, we just had a fun time, and then he had to go on the road. Uh, that's when I got uh, Eric Dover would do it after that, and Ryan Roxy from Alice's Band, and could always make phone calls. I had to go out of town. Eric Singer would play drums, or Clem Burke, or Tishy, or Tommy Clufetis, or Carmine yeah. Apice. We had just all these people. And again, because it was, no one's going to get rich. It was like 80 bucks in the parking's 20. So there you guys go. And, you know, Slim Jim's Club. Okay, yeah. And it was everyone knew. And it was, just like I said, it was credible. There was a bit of a universal set list. And, um, <clears throat> I had known those guys before Gilby was in Guns N' Roses because in the 80s, the Stray Cats, we were rockabilly and this and that, but I was very, I lived in L.A. at that point, and I was the guy who went out. So right. I didn't care what kind of music somebody played or kind of you know, what their hair was. Like, the people that partied were Nikki Six and Tommy Lee and Slash, and, Iz, and that's who I was friends with. I don't really know if I knew anyone's music or if they knew mine, but we all, that was the gang kind of, you know, yeah. and I had a house with a pool table above, you know, above the rainbow, so you know, when they closed, we went to my house, so, it was, um, it, so I love all those guys, I really do, they yeah. were, you know, and it was a great, years. it was a great, uh, great, great venue, and a great night, I remember it very specifically, this must have, it must have been around that time, 2000, 2001, um, yeah, we were there 99 to, you know, a couple of years ago, and actually the partners I had sold out, and I, and I stayed in, with my share, so it's it it's a different format there, but still a building there that sells you know booze. It's just not live music anymore. It's not live music anymore. One less, yeah. No, 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 no. no um, that world. And of course, let's talk about the Head Cat now. Uh, you know that that was a, a band, and I remember Brian Pereira of Cleopatra Records sent sure. sent this over and said, "Hey, check this out. It's Lemmy doing rockabilly." And you had, of course, Danny Harvey on there who. Yep. Unless I'm mistaken, I believe I saw him open for Kiss at the Palladium in '80. I think he was in the Rockettes, wasn't he? Yes. Which yes, he was. And um, so, so talk to me. I mean, here's Lemmy from Motorhead. How how does he or and you sit down and go? Yeah, we're going to do a, a you know a rockabilly record. Talk to me about that sort of concept, how it came to be, and and well. It- came to be really since the old days in London. I'm, you know, Lemmy was my friend since 1980, still to he, you know, and I spoke at his funeral. So uh, however long that was, we were friends and always managed to stay in touch. And then when he moved to L.A., he moved to the next street uh, behind me. We saw each other all the time. And, and, was, and it was actually through Cleopatra. They uh, asked us to do a um, track for like a tribute record for Elvis Presley. And Lem wanted to do it. And, um, you know, I thought, who can we get? So I get Lem, Loves Elvis, and that's not like those English cats, you know, if you want to talk about the Jeff Becks or the Claptons or the, or the Keiths or the Ozzies or the, they all love American rock and roll, yeah. you know. You know, Paul McCartney got involved with the Beatles because he could play the solo from 20 Flight Rock on the, on the, on the deck or, you know, the double decker bus, you know what I mean? Well, that's how George got in. I, it, it, it's all connected more to the English guys. It's funny. Um, so, um, so of course, Lammy's of that age and he loved it. So Elvis Presley tribute track, sure, I'll do it. So we went into a studio and like we did it in five minutes and we had a three hour session. So, uh, well, Let's try this one. Let's try that one. Before we knew it, we had two, three, four songs down. We turned it in, so we had the, um, you know, the obligation to, to the label, and then we just stayed. And and Lemmy's, you know, that type of guy. Really, well, let's come back tomorrow. How much does the studio cost for tomorrow? Well, I'll let you use the studio. The you know the guy's thrilled to have us in there. So we just kept going back, and after a couple of weeks, 
you have an album. And a guy like Lemmy, he loved that music, but he never really played that music. Like a lot of those English guys, um, uh, me, I've been spoiled. I've got to play rockabilly my whole life with Brian Setzer. You know, <laughs> these guys have right. never had a chance to do Eddie Cochran's song in uh, Motorhead or in the Rolling. You know, so I was a little spoiled, and like also at the same time happy to. Wow, if it means that much to you. You want to play rockabilly? I'm happy to be the drummer. You know, so it was really again like out of a labor of love, and we would do it between everyone's schedule, really right up until the end with Lem. Like, uh, yep. just those guys love that music. And it's a it's an accessible music. I don't know if you can get together with a couple of your pals and play uh, um, you know close to the edge by yes you know, but you can certainly get a couple of guys and knock it together and do summertime blues you know. Um, so um, it's kind of an accessible music too, I think for everybody. Yeah, it really is. Um, do you, by the way, hear a beeping sound in the background? Yeah, that's my phone. Might be out of battery soon. <laughs> Oh okay okay oh okay so uh, maybe we'll 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 wrap. I can this. call you on the other line. Uh, well, you know we're we're at forty five minutes. I'll, I'll let me let me let me wrap this up here. Um, sure. Let me take a little. Bit. Um, we spoke before about the the farewell tour, which was two thousand eight two thousand nine. But in terms of recording, uh, Rumble and Brixton came out in two thousand four. Original Cool ninety three. Choo Choo Hot Fish ninety two. I mean, it's been a while. Um, if you do more shows down the road. At some point, do you think it's necessary to make new music, or is it just okay to go out there and do shows, play the old songs that the fans like, and away we go? Well, I think it's okay to do that. Um, um, think of all the big acts now. I guess the Stones make a new album, kind of, but you know, you go, you play, they play a couple songs from it. I want to hear Jumping Jack Flash myself, you know, but I think it's important for the artist, maybe. Um, I would do it. I'm the drummer, but it it just seems that things are hard to organize. So right now it stands. Everyone spoke earlier in the year and says, "Let's try to do something." Okay, you want to play? Yeah, I'll play. You want to play? Yeah, I'll play. And I and that's and, and that's where it's at. So everyone wants to do it, and now we'll see what what's out there, what the interest is, and. Um, so for me, it's very much one step at a time. Like, okay, everyone wants to do it, then we'll come back and we'll see if you know there's interest or there's not. But um, um, a lot of it, a lot of the people haven't seen it because it's one of those scenes that regenerates. It's like a lot of young people really does. who became rockabilly types, I suppose. You know, they um, they heard it the same way that maybe they heard the Stray Cats, and it had the effect on their life. Like when I first heard Gene Vincent, it had that they're just not interested in anything else and that's what i want to look like that's what i want to hang out with that's what i want to do and um so i think a lot of them probably haven't seen it yeah i hope to see it soon now i do hear that beeping on on your phone so um i just want to thank you i mean we, we got oh, well, to, to, you, to 45 minutes out and we said we were going to do 20 this has been absolutely a thrill <laughs> And, and I do have to say that uh, going back to those early days in the 90s, coming out of high school and, and seeing, I mean, Stray Cats, I mean, it was just so different to what was on that you, you could not not be attracted to it and just go, wow, what is this? Great yeah, times. Exactly. Just great I mean, times. To see that, I was trying to imagine if I was young and on, you know, 1981 on Fridays, okay, here's the, the band this week and it's the Stray Cats come on there. I can imagine it being a little like, holy mackerel, what is this? There wasn't really a template for it. No. Nope. So, um, so that's the thing I'm genuinely proud of is that we really did come up with something different, and it's you know got legs and influenced some new guys who were great. Just you know keep it all going, pass the torch. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, 
Thank you. Great pleasure well, today. Thank, thank you. you. Just stay in touch anytime, Mitch. You got my info. Just stay in touch. Absolutely. Will do. And, uh, yeah, let's do another one of these, uh, especially if you go out back on the road with the straight cast. Let's, let's always hit, you know, and write another book. Let's, let's keep talking. You got it, buddy. Anytime. Thank you. Have a good day. Take care now. Bye-bye Bye-bye now. Download new episodes of Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn every Monday at Podcast One and on the Podcast One app. Or you can subscribe at iTunes. And don't forget to rate, review, and share. President Trump denies it. I'm Rita Foley with an AP News Minute. President Trump denies on Twitter using vulgar language when questioning why the U.S. would accept more immigrants from Haiti and African nations. 17 dead, 43 missing in Southern California after Tuesday's heavy rain and devastating mudslides. Santa Barbara County Sheriff Bill Brown is asking people to evacuate some areas so search and rescue crews can do their jobs. It is seriously impacting the ability of search and rescue, public works, other first responders and repair crews to clear roadways and to engage in search and rescue repair and damage assessment operations. Missouri Governor and former Navy SEAL Eric Greitens is now under investigation after acknowledging an extramarital affair but denying anything more, including accusations that he tried to blackmail the woman into keeping quiet. I'm Rita Foley.